Right, we return tonight to our salvation series, and it's number 60, in fact. And at the moment, we're still dealing with present salvation or sanctification. What we're on, we've seen that because of what Jesus has done on the cross and because we've believed on him, that we have therefore been set free from the penalty of sin. But the section that we're on at the moment, present tense salvation, is seeing that entire process whereby the Lord wants to deliver us, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. And in continuing that area, we're tonight going to do the first of two studies about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, what we're going to do tonight is that we're going to look at the significance of being baptised with the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at what it actually means. And then, having done that, we're going to actually go through the Acts and we're going to see examples of people being baptised with the Holy Spirit. And then having done that, next time in the second talk, we're going to actually home in and look at this subjective effect of it on our lives. So tonight we're going to say, what exactly is the baptism in the Spirit, and where do we see it happening in the Bible? And then next time we're going to say, right, what does it do to you? What happens to you? What effect does it have? Anyway, let's start tonight. Just go to John, John's Gospel in chapter 1. And let's just see and define very, very clearly what we're actually looking at tonight. John chapter 1, and find firstly verse 29. And this is the preaching of John the Baptist. And in verse 29 we read this. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now there you have quite clearly Jesus as the saviour, or if you remember earlier in the course, I kicked that term out because it's jargon, rescuer. That's what the word means. Here we have Jesus as the rescuer. Because he was the Lamb of God who took the sins of the world away, therefore we could be saved by believing on him. But go down into verse 33. We've just seen him as saviour or rescuer, but now, look what John says. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, now John is here telling the crowd something that the Father, God the Father, had said to him earlier. And it was this, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. Now this is what we're homing in on, alright, the fact that Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. Now the way I want to demonstrate to you what exactly it means to be baptized in the Spirit is in actual fact by homing in and demonstrating to you the meaning of three of Israel's religious feasts and you'll see precisely why those three ones are the ones that we need. In fact there were seven in all uh, in, during Israel's year, they had seven feasts which the Lord had commanded them to celebrate. And of course, as with everything in the Old Testament, whether it was their feasts, whether it was their temple, whether it was their sacrificial system, whether it was the priesthood, everything 
even the, the garments that the priests wore were all symbolizing what Jesus was going to do when he came to die on the cross. Now this is why that old system that Israel was under, that's why it doesn't apply to us. Its only job was there to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, you don't need it anymore. But we're going to look at three of the seven feasts that made up, if you like, Israel's calendar. And we're going to look at the Feast of the Passover very quickly. We're going to have a dippy-dippy into the Feast of First Fruits, and then we're going to have a little deeper dippy-dippy into the Feast of Pentecost. And already that word is ringing bells. Pentecost, baptism in the Spirit. My goodness, isn't this exciting? How's I'm going to tie all this together? But remember that we're going to see that these three feasts, as with everything else in the Old Testament, were simply there to prefigure the coming of Jesus. Right, first of all, the Feast of Passover. Now remember, the Feast of the Passover was instituted to commemorate the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Do you remember how what happened was that the, God's judgment was coming on Egypt. Egypt represented the world, the unconverted state, before you knew Jesus. And what happened was that God said, my judgment is going to come on Egypt, and, and the judgment was, was death. And what happened was that all the Jews, because they were God's people, they had to put blood on the doors where they lived. And what happened was that therefore, when the angel of death came, it passed over their doors. The judgment didn't touch them. Now, there's a picture. The blood had to be from a lamb, alright? Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you're under the blood, you know, got blood on the door of your life, covered by the blood of Jesus, the judgment of God passes over you. So can you see the feast of Passover, in that sense, was looking back on the deliverance from Egypt. But at the same time, that very deliverance from Egypt and its symbolism was looking forward to the coming of Jesus and what he was going to do. So with the Passover feast in the Old Testament, remember these feasts were still being carried on, they were still happening at the time of Jesus, that this particular feast, the Feast of Passover, was the, the feast, if you like, of salvation itself. It was the symbol of actually being saved, believing on Jesus, and therefore being set free from the judgment of God, from the penalty of sin. And of course, in actual fact, we've seen it, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus was the Passover Lamb. You see, Jesus was the fulfilment of the festival of Passover. And in actual fact, do you know what? Do you know what was significant the day that Jesus died? It was the Jewish feast of Passover. He died at the feast of Passover. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. One Corinthians chapter 5, and let's just read verse 7. This is something that Paul writes. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, and in the Bible, leaven, as we're going to see, was the picture of sinfulness. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I know what that means, I'm a bit of a lump. <laughs> <laughs> as you really are, 
Well, that's what Belinda calls me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I will never be able to read that verse without laughing. As you really are a leaven. <laughs> he says, and this is the bit we want anyway, for Christ, our Paschal Lamb, and that word Paschal is Passover. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. So can you see that? The Feast of Passover represented salvation and Jesus actually <coughs> fulfilled that Feast of Passover. Now, the next festival we want is the Feast of Firstfruits. Now, the Feast of Firstfruits, what's this all about? <coughs> the next two, Firstfruits and Pentecost, are all about agriculture. It's all about harvest through our, you know, I already lived in the country for years, you know, <laughs> up, up in Suffolk, so I know the ropes about this. Now, what happened was that when it came to planting, i.e. when the harvest, when the time for sowing began, what happened was that in all the different fields in Israel, they got these hoops, and what they did is they just chucked these hoops in a field. Now, wherever these hoops landed, can you see in the middle of the hoop that the seed in the middle of the hoop would grow up and would be designated by the presence of the hoop? Alright? Can you see that? So, when they sowed, they finished the sowing and they chucked these hoops in, a, you know, in all the... I think it was three in each field, but I'm not sure about that. And so what happened is that as, as the harvest began to grow, that where the hoops were, you'd have an actual sheaf or a bit of that harvest that was clumped together, growing inside of the hoop. Now, what happened was that the Feast of the First Fruits, which is the one we're interested in now, this feast happened right at the beginning of harvesting. And remember that when it comes to harvesting, you've got the time when the harvesting starts. And then you've got the time when the harvesting finishes. Now, first fruits was the beginning of the harvesting process. But before anyone did any harvesting, first of all came the feast of the first fruits. Now, what happened was, was this. When they were ready to start harvesting, they went into all the fields, all over Israel, all the farmers, all the people, and that they got whatever bit of the harvest in a field was designated growing in the middle of these rings. What they did is they chopped that off separately. So you'd have a handful of whatever it was, all right? Now, that first bit of the harvest was what was known as the first fruits. And when it was cut down, you know, they went to find the rings and cut it down, that when that was done, these were given to the Lord in what was called a wave offering. They used to sort of wave it to the Lord. And what they were saying is, Lord, this harvest has come from you, and the first fruits of the harvest, the first bit of the harvest, we return and we give to you. Now, can you see that what was happening is that the rings were simply a way of designating a bit of the harvest, and before anyone touched anything, before anyone started to harvest after the crops were grown, first of all, these offerings were given to the Lord. It was the Lord who gave the harvest in the first fruit in the first place. Therefore, the first fruits of the harvest were, be, uh, were then handed over to him. Now then, what's interesting is this, that the feast of the first fruits was the third day after the Passover. So, in fact, Passover was just before harvesting began. So you had the Feast of Passover, then you had three days 
And the harvesting began, but on the third day, the first fruits of the harvest were given back to God. Now then, we've established that Jesus died on the Passover. What happened three days after that particular Passover when Jesus died on the cross? Three days later, he rose again from the dead. Now, can you see the point of this, the significance? Because of the death of Jesus on the cross, Passover, sin was dealt with. The way was open for people to be saved. Three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. The whole lot is done. Salvation is now open to absolutely everybody. But the point was that on the third day after Passover, on the day of the Feast of Firstfruits, when the firstfruits of the harvest were offered back to God, what was happening is that Jesus was presented to the Father as the firstfruits of a massive harvest of souls and saved people that were to follow in the years later. Can you see that? So Jesus, in rising from the dead, was the literal first fruits, the first example of a massive harvest of salvation which was to follow. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. And it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and that happened on the day of first fruits. And Paul says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Can you see, Paul is, 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 is referring here to the fact that Jesus fulfilled the feast of first fruits. Now, this is exactly in Jesus' teaching. Do you remember what he talks about the corn of wheat? He says that unless it falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it does fall into the ground and die, it bears much fruit. Do you remember him saying that? And of course, what he was doing, he was referring preeminently to himself as the harvest. And he was saying, if I do not die, I will abide alone. Can you see? No one would be added into the salvation of Jesus. And obviously Jesus was salvation because Jesus is God. But what he was saying is, but if I fall into the ground and die, that's literally what he did, his body was buried in a cave. But if I go into the ground and die, I will bear much fruit. Can you see? Because thousands upon thousands of people would then come into salvation because Jesus had died and because Jesus had been raised again from the dead. This is precisely what Jesus was referring to himself as being, the corn of wheat that fell into the ground and died and therefore bore much fruit. Go back to the end of John's Gospel. <coughs> John chapter 20, because while we're on this, there's something that's just worth looking at here. <coughs> we're going to be back to this bit in a few studies' time, alright? But this, is, this explains why it is. Do you remember when Mary met Jesus in the garden? On the third day, Jesus had just been raised from the dead and early in the morning Mary meets him and to begin with doesn't recognize him and then when she does recognize him she sort of runs up to him gives him a big hug and you remember Jesus said don't touch me all right don't touch me now here we have the reason why let's read verse 17 now at this point Mary has recognized Jesus it's the morning of the resurrection and G uh, Mary has just recognized that it's Jesus and, and she runs up 
you see. And, and Jesus said to her, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren, that's the other disciples, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So what he says, look, no, don't touch me, Mary, because I haven't ascended to Father yet. But go and tell the disciples that I am ascending. Now, what happened was that Jesus ascended into heaven the morning that he was raised again from the dead. I know there was a general ascension that everyone saw 40, you know, later on, but that wasn't the one. Now, can you see that what Jesus is saying here is that he couldn't be touched by a human because he's the first fruits and he had to be given to Father as a wave offering. Can you see? You just picture, can't you? Jesus ascends and he's sort of tearing through the universe. And when he gets to the end of the universe, because obviously heaven is outside of the universe. We know that because heaven has always been there. The universe hasn't always been there. Therefore the universe has a limit somehow. So heaven is outside of the universe. And you can just picture Jesus belting through the cosmos, all right? And he gets outside the universe and he arrives in heaven and what's he doing? He's waving, I'm coming home, I'm coming home. Can you see? It was the way offering. Because salvation was totally accomplished by then. So here, Jesus is saying, don't touch me Mary, because first, I must go to Father, I'm the first fruits, and like the first fruits of the harvest was waved to God before anyone else harvested it, in the same way no one could touch Jesus until he had returned and been presented to his father back in heaven. Alright, so there's the Passover and there is the Feast of First Fruits. And what we're seeing is that the first fruits is quite simply the beginning of the harvest. We now come on to the Feast of Pentecost. Now the Feast of Pentecost was the end of the harvesting. So the first fruits was when they began harvesting. The Feast of Pentecost was when they finished harvesting. And Pentecost was for them what we would call the Harvest Festival. All right. Now, the Harvest Festival of Pentecost was 50 days exactly after the Feast of Firstfruits. So you had, in any one year, you had the Feast of the Passover, then three years later, the Feast of Firstfruits. Then came the busy season, because it was doing the harvesting. And they had 50 days to get the harvest in. And then, exactly 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, then it was Pentecost. Then it was the Harvest Festival. And in fact, the word Pentecost comes from the mere fact that Pente is the Greek for 50. So Pentecost simply means that. It means 50. All right. So in actual fact, in the year that Jesus died and was raised from the dead, you had the Passover, the day of his death. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, the Feast of Firstfruits. Then exactly 50 days after that, 50 days after the day of the resurrection of Jesus, then you had the day of Pentecost. Just go to Acts 3. Because this is how we know that the disciples were waiting in the upper room for 10 days. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 and this is speaking of Jesus he says to them that is the disciples he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs <coughs> appearing to them during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God so what happens is this Jesus is raised again from the dead 
dies on the Passover, three days later, raised again from the dead. Quick chat with Mary, belts back to heaven, alright? There's the ascension. Then comes straight back the same day, because remember that morning that he spoke with Mary and said, don't touch me, later on that day, he's having a meal with the disciples, and they are allowed to touch him. Can you see? Because he descended and then come back down again. So, he's raised from the dead, back to heaven, feast of first fruits, straight back down to earth, alright, and then he's got 40 days when he's flitting between heaven and earth, alright, physically, but during those 40 days he appears a lot to the disciples and various people on the earth. And then at the end of that 40 days you have the ascension proper, which was the time when Jesus ascended back into heaven physically, so that from that point onwards it was normative that from then on, Jesus is physically in heaven. There have been exceptions. Jesus, even in the New Testament, occasionally, during the Acts of the Apostles, appeared to people physically. It's happened since. It happens today. But normatively, Jesus is physically on heaven. And the, uh, physically lives in heaven. The reason being is that he was about to, and this is where Pentecost comes in, he was about to arrange a situation whereby he could normatively live in heaven physically because he was going to arrange to have another body that he could use down on earth. Alright? And this, we're going to see, is what Pentecost is all about. So after the 40 days, Jesus ascends and then for 10 days, the disciples are in the upper room waiting for this baptism in the spirit. Now, of course we know it was ten days because they were baptised on the day of Pentecost. Ten days later. Now then, I just want to quickly show you the symbolism of the two festivals of First Fruits and Pentecost. Now I'm not going to go into great things. I've just picked out one or two bits, alright, because these things I'm saying you could have ten studies on each festival itself, you know, if you really wanted to go into it that deeply. But first of all, the Feast of Firstfruits. The Feast of Firstfruits represents Jesus as the firstfruits of the harvest. But what we're going to see is that the Feast of Pentecost, in actual fact, represents the birth of the church. Remember what I just said? Jesus went back to heaven pretty permanently because he was going to arrange to have another body back on earth. Now then, let's have a look at the Feast of First Fruits. first of all. At the Feast of Fr First Fruits, it was symbolised by having a single sheaf, alright? Now, a single sheaf is comprised of separate grains. So you've got the sheaf, and of course all the separate grains are there on the sheaf. Also, in the Feast of the First Fruits, there was no leaven allowed, alright? Whereas, at the Feast of Pentecost... You had two loaves of bread, not just a single sheaf. You had two loaves of bread, alright, and you had leaven in it. Now, what's all this about? Well, okay, first fruits. A single sheaf, separate grains, that is representing Jesus. Can you see that? Because on the resurrection morning, <coughs> Jesus was the first who was raised after salvation was implemented. And there was no leaven in that feast because Jesus was sinless. But when it comes on to Pentecost, which represents not Jesus personally, but the formation, the birth of the church, then you've got two loaves of bread, and the significance of that is twofold. 
Because when you get a loaf of bread, what you first have to do is that the individual grains of the sheaf, all right, because you make bread out, you know, you have to grind it down into flour. The individual grains of the harvest are ground together and then mixed with oil. All right, that's by and large how you make bread. Now, can you see that what it's representing here, yes, I, I know lots about cooking as well. I see John, John sitting there making silly faces at my wife, which is inexcusable. No. Can you see, the point is that with the bread, the two loaves of bread, you've got individual grains ground into one and mixed with oil, so that you've got individuals consolidated into a corporate oneness through the Holy Spirit because oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit can you see that picture there that in the first fruits which was Jesus just one person that the grains were individual in Pentecost representing the church you there have loaves of bread and in the loaves of bread the individual grains you and I individually are ground into a corporate unit mixed with the oil of the Holy Spirit now that is what the church that is what fellowship is all about but also there were two loaves two loaves not one there were two now that doesn't mean there are two churches of course it doesn't there's only one church throughout history in that sense but what it represented is that on the day of pentecost the church began amongst israel because they were all jews now you remember the terrible problem they had accepting that the gentiles could be part of salvation so what happened is that in the house of cornelius which we will see later on, the first time that the church evangelizes a completely Gentile situation, what happens is that you have a repeat performance of Pentecost that was necessary to convince the Jews that the Gentiles were really in. So can you see the two loaves represent the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost on the church who were all Jews at that time and then the second outpouring of the Spirit on the Gentiles that was necessary to show that the distinction between Israel and the Gentiles was smashed through Jesus and of course the distinction insofar as being part of the church is completely gone and also I said as well that whereas at the Feast of First Fruit there was no leaven because Jesus was sinless, at the Feast of Pentecost there was leaven because we as the church are not sinless. Sin is ever present within the church. So with this fe these feasts, what we're seeing is this. The Feast of Passover is what you might call salvation secured. The Feast of First Fruits, and the Passover being the death of Jesus, the Feast of First Fruits, the day he was raised from the dead, is showing Jesus as the first sheaf in a harvest of salvation to follow. And then when we get on to Pentecost, 50 days later, you've got individual Christians although having been saved as individuals because obviously each person is an individual before the Lord but having got saved individually the single grains on the sheaf what happens then 
is that there is an endowment of supernatural power from the Holy Spirit in order to make a reality the fact that though individuals we are also part of the corporate body of Christ, the church. Can you see that thing about Pentecost? That individual Christians, although saved individually, obviously, at Pentecost those individuals are endued with power from the Holy Spirit in order to become one body mixed up together in order to function as a single entity, the church. Now can you see what Pentecost is all about? Now in fact, <coughs> a few weeks ago when we uh, baptised John, we, um, I did a Bible study on baptism and that I was saying there that you have to remember that there are different baptisms in the Bible, alright? Now, we've homed in on three feasts. I just want now to home in on three different baptisms in the Bible. There are more than three, but we are interested in three in particular. All right. Firstly, there's baptism in water. All right. Now, baptism in water is all to do with individual salvation. You get baptised because you have become a Christian. And remember, your baptism is your funeral. You're saying, I belong to Jesus, now I'm dead to the old life, the old me is gone, and now I belong to Jesus, I have a new life, alright? Now, obviously, because that baptism is representing your own personal salvation, it's for your benefit, you see? Because you personally will never come under the judgment of God, so that is for your benefit. There is baptism in water. Now, the baptism with the Spirit is slightly different because at the baptism in the Holy Spirit you are empowered to function as part of the body of Christ remember your salvation or baptism in water is an individual affair that's you as an individual before Jesus but to be baptized with the Spirit is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to take your place as part of the body of Christ and to then function in unity and oneness with other believers and therefore to become a channel for the blessing of others because your personal salvation Jesus who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that's for your benefit but the baptism in the Spirit to be empowered to be part of the church and bring blessing to other people that is for other people's benefit not yours that's to be a channel of blessing to other people now then when you become a Christian and we're going to see this in the Acts of the Apostles later when you become a Christian <coughs> you need to be baptized in water and baptized with the Holy Spirit as soon as possible alright so those two baptisms baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit you need those as soon as possible but notice something else about these baptisms. When you're baptised in water, the agency of that baptism is other Christians. Alright? Because they baptise you. I mean, normally it's just one person. But the point is, you're baptised in water to say that I am saved as an individual through the agency of other Christians. When you're baptised in the Spirit that 
is through the agency of Jesus himself. Now, can you see that? Because, for instance, when we baptised John a few weeks ago, I mean, I actually did the baptism. So it's quite fair to say I baptised. I mean, it could have been anyone. It just fell to me. But it's quite fair to say I baptised John in water. But when John was baptised in the Spirit, Jesus did that. Can you see? The agencies are different. The active partner is different. In water baptism, the active partner is other believers in <coughs> Baptism with the Spirit, the active partner, is Jesus himself. But now we need to move on to the third baptism that I want to move on to. And going to 1 Corinthians 12. I think that in 1 Corinthians 12, you traditionally have the baptism that no one quite knows what to do with. It kind of sticks out a bit, hard to fit in. Let's see what we can do with it. 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to read verse 12 and 13. Now, I want you to note the context of 1 Corinthians 12 is that Paul is speaking about the various works that the Holy Spirit does. Primarily the gifts of the Spirit, but Paul is homing in on what the Holy Spirit does. Now then, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. He's talking about the church here. For by one spirit, or for with, by, you know, with one spirit, for by one spirit, by the Holy Spirit, we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now we've got another baptism here. And what we've got here is the baptism into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now, what on earth is this all about? Well, what we've got here is that as soon as you believe on Jesus, as soon as you are born again, you are baptised into the body of Christ. You actually become part of Jesus' body on earth, his church. But in order to be empowered to live that out, in order to receive power to make that a reality in your life and to actually practically function as part of the body of Christ, you need to be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Now then, let's try and put this together. When you're baptised in water, which should be as soon as possible after you're converted, and water baptism is signifying your individual salvation in Jesus, that is done through the agency of other believers. When you are baptised with the Holy Spirit, and which again ought to take place as soon as possible after you get converted, when you're baptised with the Holy Spirit, you then receive power to act out your role as part of the body of Christ. But the agent in that is not other believers, it's Jesus himself who does that. Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit to enable you to live out your role in the body of Christ. But with this third baptism, which actually happens when you're born again, in the third baptism, 
you are this is when you are actually put into the body of Christ made part of the body of Christ but the agency of that isn't other believers it isn't Jesus it's the Holy Spirit can you see that because in 1 Corinthians 12 Paul is homing in not in that sense in what Jesus specifically does but he's homing in specifically on the ministry of the Holy Spirit and notice the terminology the baptism with the Spirit endowment of power from Jesus that's baptism with the Spirit that's something Jesus does with the Holy Spirit but here when you're converted to be baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit is something the Holy Spirit does can you see it's different so when you get born again the Holy Spirit places you in the body of Christ and then because you've been placed in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit you then need Jesus to baptize you with the Holy Spirit so that you can actually live out your role in the body of Christ so what we've got is this the moment you become a Christian you are immediately baptized into the body of Christ now remember baptism Greek verb was it mean bapto it means to dip or to immerse i.e. the Greeks would use it I, if you went to the well and you drew out the bucket all right, loads of water and you got your little vessel and you put it in to get your daily supply of water out that is the word bapto alright and I've told you before that Plato used the verb metaphorically of being overwhelmed by something alright so then what you've got is that the moment you are converted you're saved immediately you're set free from the penalty of sin because Jesus has saved you but the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ he immediately makes you part of the church part of Jesus's body on earth then because all that has happened you need to get baptized in water to outwardly signify your salvation and then baptized in the Holy Spirit to receive the supernatural power to live it out in practical terms in fellowship with other people right now what I want to do now what we've got to move on to is that we've got to therefore because we're homing in in this study on being baptized with the Holy Spirit what Jesus does the supernatural endowment with power but what we must do now because there is some disagreement by some Christians about this is that we've got to demonstrate clearly that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is quite separate from actually being born again alright now let me do it by asking a question do you actually get the Holy Spirit <coughs> only when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit or do you get the Holy Spirit when you're born again so can you see the question when do you get the Holy Spirit is it when you're born again converted become a Christian or is it when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit well the answer is quite clearly and we must understand this you get the Holy Spirit the moment you're converted because remember it's at that moment that he actually makes you part of the body of Christ let's actually see this go to John chapter 3 John chapter 3 John chapter 3 and we want first of all verse 3 
And Jesus says this, and this is when he's speaking to Nicodemus. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Go down into verse 5. That which is born of water, uh, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember I showed, I told you when we covered this months ago, uh, when we were doing the new birth, that for the Jews to be born in water meant your physical birth as a baby coming out of the womb. To be born of the Spirit was to be born again because you've come to know Jesus. So we can see quite clearly there that it's by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 15. Um, No, forget about verse 15. I shouldn't have had that done down. But there you can see it that there to be born again is actually to be born of the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit the moment you become a Christian. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. And in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, we read this. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And you must understand this also, that Paul was living and writing to people living in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was dominated by emperor worship. The, th the thing partially that religiously held the Roman Empire together is that they worshipped their emperor as God. And they, and they called the Roman Emperor Lord. So this phrase, Jesus is Lord, means quite clearly Jesus is God. That's what the phrase means. Because the Romans were into emperor worship believing that the emperor was God. So here, we're not just talking about people who say, you know, Jesus is kind of big boss or in charge. This is specifically, a Christian is someone who knows that Jesus is God, all right? And you can only come to that knowledge, you can only say that, you can only become a believer by the Holy Spirit. So there again, we see quite clearly, you receive the Holy Spirit the moment that you're born again. Now, <clears throat> we'll be good at this point to just go through the disciples, alright? And that what I want to do is ask a question. I wonder if we can pinpoint exactly when they were born again. Now, you have to remember that the disciples, because they were the first, were slightly exceptional. If something is the first, it always later becomes the exception to prove the rule. For instance, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first man and woman. But in order to be the first man and woman, they by definition had to be the exception that proved the rule. For instance, they were the only people who were fully adult two minutes after they were born. Can you see? So if you've got the first, it is always exceptional. All right. Now, therefore, we'll look through the disciples, and I would say this, that because they are the exception, the first, because they're the exception that proves the rule, I cannot personally quite pinpoint when they were born again. But I do guarantee that we will reach a point when we know for sure they are born again, all right? So let's actually do this. If you go, first of all, to Matthew in chapter 16, 
Remember, we're asking, is the baptism with the Holy Spirit separate from being born again? And in Matthew 16, and from verse 13 onwards, we have this thing where, where Jesus says to Simon Peter, who do men say that I am? And he says, well, they say you this, that, and the other. And Jesus says, yeah, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the famous statement, he says, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, all right? And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, here we're beginning to see that the disciples are receiving revelation by the Holy Spirit. Go now to John 14, and we'll see how this progresses. And John 14, which is chronological, chronologically a little bit later than the story that we've read about Peter and Matthew. And in John 14, and find verse 16, and this is Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. He says, I will pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter, comforter counsellor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, etc., etc. And then in verse 17, he says, For he dwells with you and will be in you. Can you see that? So at this particular point, the Holy Spirit is with the disciples, but there seems to be an indication he's not in them. Now I personally don't know whether they're born again or not. I don't care, because we're going to see in, the, you know, in a moment that they reach a point where even though you can't pinpoint when it happened, you now know it has. But can you see that? Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is with you, but he's going to be in you. Um, go over to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, this is when the disciples are meeting with Jesus after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Alright? And Jesus appears to them like in the upper room. Verse 19. Um, on the evening of that, of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, etc., etc. Now go down to verse 22. And when he had said that, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, can you see, at this point, if they hadn't been born again yet, then they definitely are by now. Can you see? But I personally wouldn't like to put a date on when it happened. But all I can say is that by the time Jesus had done this, they are definitely born again by now. If only because Jesus actually says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. In uh, answer to his promise of John 14, that the Holy Spirit was with them, but would soon be in them. Now then, go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. They definitely now have got the Holy Spirit in them. They are definitely born again now. Jesus has said, receive the Holy Spirit. And they have definitely received the Spirit. Now then, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. He says, John baptised with water, but before many days, you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Now this is after the upper room experience where he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. Can you see, the baptism with the Spirit is definitely something that happens after conversion. Definitely. And then go down, uh, Acts chapter 1 still, go down to verse 8. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now only 
Only a while before this, he said, receive the Holy Spirit and breathe the Holy Spirit on them. But now he's talking about them receiving the Holy Spirit in a completely different way. Because the baptism with the Holy Spirit is quite different and quite separate from actually being born again. And then go over into chapter 2, and in verse 4, this is the day of Pentecost, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, you see. And there they actually receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So there we can see, just from a quick survey of the disciples, that to be baptised in the Spirit is completely separate and different from receiving the Holy Spirit when you're born again and when he himself baptises you into the body of Christ. Now having done that, we're now going to go through the rest of Acts and we're going to see exactly the same thing in the ministry of the early church. Now while we do this, we're going to be looking for three things. We're looking for people getting saved, alright, being born again, number one. We're looking for people getting baptised in water, number two. And we're looking for people getting baptised in the Holy Spirit, number three, alright. But the last two, baptism in water and baptism with the Holy Spirit, you'll see that the order of those can change. Obviously, being born again comes first. That order can't change. But with being baptised in water and baptised in the Spirit, the order varied according to the situation. But what we're interested in seeing is that the two were expected to happen and follow on. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. The first evangelistic sermon that the early church preached, all right? And it's Peter preaching it. Peter said, Repent. Alright, and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There's baptism in water. Alright? Can you see Peter is just expecting it to happen? Just expecting it, that it would happen. Get converted, you get baptised in water. But what does he say then? And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He then expects them to get baptised in the Holy Spirit. It comes with the package. This is exactly what the early church taught, you see. The only reason that we've ended up confused about it is because the church forgot about it for 2,000 years odd. But this is exactly what the early church preached right from the beginning. Go over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 4, verse 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now here we have... Philip, going down to Samaria, he's preaching the gospel. It's the first time it's been preached down there. Off he goes, and he starts preaching, telling them about Jesus. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Now here, the converts get baptised. You see, it's taken for granted. They've, they've been born again. They're Christians. They're now baptised in water. No, no question <coughs> about it whatsoever. But go over to verse 14. <coughs> now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God which meant they'd been converted they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit now they're going to make sure they get baptised in the Spirit for it had not yet fallen on any of them they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit can you see it? Philip goes down, he preaches People get converted. They're baptised in water. Before too long, 
the apostles are down there laying hands on them they say right you've been baptized in water got to get baptized in the spirit lay hands on them they're baptized with the holy spirit over to chapter 9 quick look at paul the apostle acts 9 the conversion of paul verse 17 now then, this is after Paul has met with Jesus on the Damascus Road, got knocked off his donkey, comes to all of us in time. <laughs> and remember, the Lord struck him blind, alright? So off he goes to Damascus, and Paul's just there in the house, he's blind, he's been converted, he's just waiting on the Lord to see what happens next, alright? <coughs> Down the road, an ordinary disciple called Ananias, alright? And, uh, some people say that only the apostles laid hands on people. Rubbish, rubbish, absolute rubbish, and you'll see that now, because Ananias wasn't an apostle or anything like that, he's just down the road, and God speaks to him and says, right, Paul's been converted, I mean, Ananias did not want to know that, he really didn't, and God says, he's been converted, go get him, alright? Now then, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, Paul's been converted, Paul's been converted, Ananias now goes to him, and he says, laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight, so Paul's going to be healed, and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he gets baptised in the Spirit here, alright? And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, there's the healing. Then he rose and was baptised. There's baptism in water. So for Paul, he gets converted. Then, very good, he's baptised in the Holy Spirit, and then immediately after that, he's baptised in water. Can you see? The order of the last two changes is not important. What matters is that it gets done. Chapter 10. Go over to Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Now then, do you remember what I said about the two loaves when we were doing about the Feast of Pentecost? Because up to this time, the Gospel is being preached to the Jews, and they're all getting converted all over the place, you see. But because the early church thus far, they're all Jews and they were a bit thick. And they still had their anti-Gentile prejudice. They didn't really think that God was going to do anything with the Gentiles. Now, a bit of a special one was needed here to prove to the early church that the Gentiles were part of the church. Could be as well. Now, what happens is that God sends Peter to preach to a house full of Gentiles. This was unheard of. And it took an incredible revelation to actually get Peter to go. And he was incredibly reluctant because he'd never been to a Gentile's house before. He's snotty. You know how religious people are snotty. Well, Peter was snotty. And God had to get this out of him. But eventually, he got there. All right, And Peter is preaching the gospel to this house full of Gentiles. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now what happens is, Peter hasn't even finished, and they get converted. <laughs> now, this is really rude, because, let's think about it, if you prepared an evangelistic sermon, I mean, you want to at least get, you don't want inconsiderate people getting saved before you've finished and made the appeal. It's not very impressive, is it? But anyway, they, they get saved halfway through his sermon, you see. So he's preaching away, he's coming to his final point, you know, stuff like that. And, and by now, they've all got converted, just like that, they're all born again. And then, they all get baptised in the Spirit. They start speaking in tongues and prophesying. So now they've been born again and baptised in the Spirit before Peter's even finished his sermon. Because no way would Peter have, have offered them the baptism in the Spirit. Oh no, that wasn't for Gentiles, he would have thought. So they cop it there before he's even finished. Now let's read on. 
And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now listen to this then. Peter declared, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we had? You see, so you needed a repeat of Pentecost for the Gentiles to persuade the Jewish section of the church that the Gentiles are in. But the point is, these Gentiles, they're converted, immediately baptised in the Spirit, and then Peter says, right lads, we've got to get you all baptised in water as well. Uh, last one, chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now mark well, these guys are Christians. You'll, 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 you'll see that quite clearly. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I.e. he's saying, have you been baptised in the Spirit? And they said, no, we have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't know, perhaps they were Anglicans. And he said, into what then were you baptised? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right. Now, what you've got here is that Paul meets up with some Christians. But... You have to understand that John the Baptist was preaching about Jesus for a long time. Before Jesus came on the scene, and after, for a while, uh, after Jesus came on the scene, there were lots of people who got converted under the preaching of John. They believed on Jesus. They were converted. And they got baptised by John, but because subsequently they'd kind of been off all over the place, they'd never up to this point met up with the church. So they're Christians because they believe on Jesus. They know Jesus. They've been baptised into the baptism of John, but no one has told them about getting baptised in the Spirit and being baptised in water in the name of Jesus. Can you see? <coughs> they're just behind on their teaching. They're genuine Christians who know Jesus. They're born again, but they haven't had instruction. In fact, these guys didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, let alone the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Can you see? They're right behind on teaching. Now, this is exactly what Paul says. So he meets them. He says, "Hey, he's assuming they've been baptized. Uh, he's assuming they've been baptized in water." But he says, "Have you been baptized in the Spirit?" And they said, "Holy Spirit, what's that?" <laughs> you see. Now Paul clicks that you know that that, that they need a bit of teaching. And, uh, and he said, into what then were you baptised? Because he thinks, oh yeah, I know these guys. I oh, says, the, these guys, they got converted through John, they didn't. They haven't met the church before. So he said, into what were you baptised? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, oh, I thought so, yeah, you see. So what he does then is that he tells them all about it. He says, look, John's baptism was, you know, telling people uh, to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So Paul starts from where they were. They knew about Jesus. They knew about the baptism of John. And they are Christians. They know Jesus. They're born again. But then Paul leads them on and he tells them about actually being baptised properly in the name of Jesus. So verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Please notice, they didn't say, well, look, Paul, can we have a few 
much to pry about it. We just want to witness that, it, you know, yeah. rubbish. The Word of God says. Can you say, I mean, the early church didn't say repent and then, you know, if you feel it's right, get baptised. Repent and get baptised. They just expected it. So the point is, immediately he baptises them. And then in verse 6, and when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And immediately afterwards, he lets them, he makes sure that they get baptised in the Holy Spirit as well. Now, there are other examples in the Acts of the Apostles of people getting converted when water baptism and or baptism in the Spirit isn't actually mentioned. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Of course it doesn't mean. All right. So we have seen the order. We have seen that the way things were in the early church. Now let's go back again to the symbolism of these feasts that I spoke about and let's start to tie this all up. Having secured salvation for anyone who wants it as the Passover lamb, Jesus then rises from the dead as the first fruits of a, a huge harvest of believers to follow. Alright? You got that. Jesus died and secured salvation as the Passover lamb. He then rose again from the dead as the first part of a massive harvest of salvation to follow. Thousands upon thousands of people who were going to get saved as a result. Now Pentecost, which represents being baptised with the Holy Spirit, is the supernatural endowment of the power of the Holy Spirit upon those individual Christians who have got saved, enabling them to take their place in the wider body of Christ. Now, the thing you need to understand about the body of Christ, and that is what the church is, the church or the body of Christ, interchangeable terms in that sense, is that there's that old chorus, Jesus has no hands but my hands. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Jesus has no mouth but our mouth. Can you see what Jesus accomplishes on earth, he does through his body. Only now, instead of his literal physical body on earth, because that's now in heaven with him, his body has been replaced by us. And what Jesus once did in a very limited way through his own physical body 2,000 years ago, he now wants to do in an unlimited way through his new body, i.e. thousands upon thousands of Christians. All right. Now this body is called the church. And it is the means of him gathering in the rest of that harvest which is to follow. Can you see that? Now, we, as individual believers, are simply component parts which together make up what I call God's celestial combine harvester. <laughs> because that's exactly what we are. We are God's combine harvester on earth to bring in the harvest of salvation. Those who want to get saved, who want to follow Jesus. Now, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the diesel that makes the combine <laughs> harvest to go. I like it. I like Can you it. see it? This is the picture of harvest in these feasts that we have. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 1. And again, 
what Jesus specifically said about being baptised with the Holy Spirit. First of all, Acts 1 and verse 8. First of all, Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now that word power in the Greek is dunamis. And it's the same word from, from whence we get dynamite, or dynamic, or dynamo. Now, a dynamo is a means, or the means, of generating power. Therefore, the baptism in the Holy Spirit means that the Holy Spirit wants to generate the power of God within us. Can you see? The Holy Spirit, through us being baptised in Him, by Jesus, wants to be generating the power of God within us. But I don't want to leave it there. God's power. What is God's power? What does it mean? The, Holy, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is so that the Holy Spirit can be generating God's power in us. But what is God's power? Can we be more specific? Keep your finger in Acts 1, but go to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24. And what I want us to get is what does the term, the power of God, mean? 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24. Uh, start from 23. We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. Now can you see, when the Bible talks about the power of God, what's it talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the power of God. Don't think that the baptism in the Spirit is kind of impersonal supernatural power coming upon you that's not it at all the power of God is Jesus himself I mean I emphasize time and time again that the Christian life is not something we do for Jesus it's nothing to do with our strength it's Jesus actually living through us so can you see the baptism when Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit it's firstly to enable the Holy Spirit to generate power within us, the power of God, and the power of God is Jesus himself. It's so that the life of Jesus himself can be released in us. But secondly, go back to Acts 1, 8. We've seen we'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. But let's see why we receive the power as well, in order that you, and you shall be my witnesses my witnesses now here in the Greek when we think of the word witness you think maybe of someone in court who's, who's merely testifying to, to that which they know well this word does mean that but it means much more than that as well it doesn't just mean someone who speaks of what they know All right, it's far more than that the actual Greek word here is marturia and marturia is the Greek word for martyr. So what Jesus is saying here is that you'll receive power of the Holy Spirit in order to be my martyrs. Alright. Now then, we've seen that the power, the dunamis of the Holy Spirit, 
is so that Jesus can live through us. Now, Marturia, witnesses, is all about this. If Jesus is to live, him, live his life through you, well, what about you? I'm sorry, you've got to die to your own life. Can you see that? You can't have one without the other. If Jesus is going to live through you, the power, dunamis, then you've got to die to yourself, witness, martyria, martyr. And of course, in Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be... Let's actually turn to it. So you actually see it. Romans chapter 12. <laughs> he says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Can you see a living sacrifice? That we as Christians are the living dead. Because as Paul said, it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. Can you see living sacrifices? That we constantly die to ourselves so that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can live through this. <laughs> now let's tie together this power and witnesses, this dunamis and martyria. First of all, we've got witness, martyr, death to the old life. Death to self. With power, dunamis, Jesus, we've got being raised to a new life, just like Jesus was, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, do those things sound familiar? Death to the old life and being raised to a new life in Jesus. Well, what have you got? I'll tell you. Those two things are the specifically what water baptism witnesses to. Can you see that? When you get baptised in water, it's your funeral. You're saying, I'm dead to me and I'm alive to Jesus. Amen. I'm dead to me, witnesses, martyria. I'm alive to Jesus, dunamis, the power of God, Jesus himself. So then, water, being baptised in water, in fact, we can now see means this. Firstly, it, it witnesses to the fact that you have been born again. Alright? It witnesses to the fact, it's an outward symbol of the fact that you have been born again. Alright? And because you've been born again, you're dead to the old life and you're raised into a new life. Alright? So firstly, water baptism is the outward symbol of being born again. Secondly... Water baptism is the outward symbol of being baptised with the Holy Spirit. Can you see that now? But water baptism is also the symbol, outwardly, of being baptised with the Holy Spirit. Alright? And it is also the symbol, outwardly, of having been baptised into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now, can you see the comprehensiveness of water baptism? And can you see why I've emphasised in the scripture how all these things tie in together? Being born again, being baptised in water, being baptised in the Holy Spirit, and being baptised into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Because water baptism is in actual fact the outward symbol, the physical symbol, if you like, of the whole lot. So when you get baptised in water, you're saying, I belong to Jesus, alright? Okay, I've been born again. I'm dead to myself, now dead to the old life. I've been raised up to a new life in Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am also part of the body of Christ 
with my brothers and sisters. And in that proclamation, you have been born again, been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and been baptized into the body of Christ. So the one water baptism is the outward symbol of all those things. Now then, that tells you, I think, a bit about what the baptism actually is. What it means, its significance. It's the power whereby individual Christians are moulded together in unity and oneness to be the Church of Jesus Christ. To go out as that corporate celestial combine harvester and bring in the harvest. But in order for that to be true, you must be baptised with the Holy Spirit. That is when you receive the power for it to be made a reality. Now then, next time, we will then look and we will ask the question, right, well, what does it actually do to you then when you get baptised in the Spirit? I mean, when Jesus baptises you in the Spirit, what does it do? Uh, I mean, what, what subjective effect does it have on our lives? Well, next time, all will be revealed.